All right, here we are. I have some Earl Grey tea, and I have my beloved here, L. Mills Warner. Say hello, L. Hello. And this will be our first time having L on the show. We actually had apparently the global we global the royal the royal we. We had L on the previous podcast that I was doing with Tom Emanuel, and I think we did some shit around the election. I don't know if it was yes. like a debate. It was, yeah. I remember the name, Make America Sweden Again. <laughs> <laughs> that is, in fact, what we did. Yeah. Uh-huh. It must have been the debates. Emmanuel wasn't able to be there. We had you on. Mm-hmm. You did poli sci in your undergrad, if I remember correctly. Correct. And we just had a good old time. But I have you here today. Working title for the episode, we'll see if it sticks, is Cult Kids, because. L and I, having met in seminary, realized that we have some things in common. L was raised in the Church of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church, and I was raised in the quote-unquote Worldwide Church of God from Herbert W. Armstrong, and the two movements actually have a lot in common, and that's something that L and I would connect with in seminary and you know, various other things we connect with. And so bringing her on today, I, it's just an obvious thing for me. Like, let's talk about, let's talk about your religious background. Cause we are the cult kids. We grew up in this strange insular American religious movement, um, which have a lot in common, a lot different as well, of course. But I just love to go down here. Cause I feel like you are somebody, you are someone who I can relate to in some special way that I just can't with other people. Agreed. You know, for example, like growing up my entire life. So in the religion I was raised in the worldwide church of God growing up. And even as an adult, I've literally only met one person in my entire life that belonged to my religion outside of my family. And like, you know, my congregants, I mean, unlike Mormonism, I'm, I'm sure you probably bump into Mormons because it's a much larger evan- evangelical faith and has survived where mine didn't, but it's a special sort of thing for better or worse. And it's a special sort of thing. So um, preambles aside, L, I don't know if you want to share a little bit about yourself if that provides any context, or if you want to just hop into origin stories, or if you want to give us an intellectual backdrop, I've literally heard, I mean, almost every time I talk to L, I ask, let's talk about Mormonism. Cause I just find it fascinating. And mm-hmm. You know, you have obviously the lived experience, but also the academic, the intellectual experience. And yeah, so I'm down for whatever. Speak to me, darling. Yeah, let's let's just dive into it, because I only know a little bit about Worldwide Church of God. You've talked to me a bit about it. I watched one video about a guy who grew up in it, but I don't know that much. So I'm curious to just dive in. On my end, I should speak. Uh-huh. I'd like to hear where you come from first, and then I'll go into the sure, sure. Right. <laughs> it's been interesting, Tanja. It's been interesting having started this podcast, and it's this quote unquote artistic medium that quote unquote I do, like inshallah, that I try to do every week. And it's been interesting that I find myself taking a much more interview stance with people and like taking up less space, which makes sense. I would reckon it makes sense. I don't know. It's just interesting. So you have already passed the ball back. All right. That's I, dope. I have. So. This is, I, I'm sorry. This is where the cult kids, we have to talk about this in tandem, I think. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. So um, this will be the first time I've talked about it on the podcast, on this podcast. So, okay. So I don't think I have as good of an intellectual or academic understanding of it as you do Mormonism. Nevertheless, here we go. I was raised in a religious movement called the Worldwide Church of God. It has since schismed about 15 or 20 dozen times, and it has different names. But when I was being raised, it was the Worldwide Church of God. It had a living, my words, prophet by the name of Herbert W. Armstrong. So there was this dude who I think he came from Seventh-day Adventism. I think he might have even been doing some lay ministry in that area back in the early 1900s. He was also involved in radio. And at some point, he basically felt called, not dissimilar from Joseph Smith, I guess 100 years prior, a couple hundred years prior. He felt called that he had this new revelation, basically. He had this new way of understanding God and the Bible, Christianity, 
theology, eschatology, which is to say the end times and salvation, that sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera. And so it started off as a radio show. Um, I think it was like Radio Church of God or some shit like that. And my grandmother, who, gosh, I guess she must have been, you know, she was like a mother at the time. So maybe she's like in her 40s or something. She, or 30s, however old she was, she was listening to the radio show. And that's how she got exposed to the teaching of Herbert W. Armstrong. And my grandmother converted the whole family, basically, you know, her husband and her progeny, her kids. My grandmother's very much a person of faith and she's like a powerful woman. You know, I come from this powerful line of matriarchs for sure. So she converted them. I think before they were some sort of mainline Protestant. So maybe like Methodist or Presbyterian or something. I'm not sure what they were. They are hillbilly stocks. So coal miners out of the mountains in Virginia, working class folks, and they converted to the Worldwide Church of God. And so, you know, I was born into it. They had been in the movement. I reckon for a couple decades by the time that I came around and I was born in 85, but also Herbert W. Armstrong passed away in I think 84 or 85. So he died, the prophet, my words, prophet, the founder of the movement, the charismatic founder of the movement. He passed around the time that I was born and the church would start to schism in his absence. And then I think... It caught up with my congregation when I was around, I don't know, maybe I was like eight or 10 or so when the schism caught up to my congregation. And basically, in the absence of Herbert W. Armstrong, other people were taking leadership and making theological claims, etc. And the big schism was around, do we stick with, quote unquote, the old teachings, which I'll go over here in a second. Do we stick with what he taught or do we go more mainline? Like, can we celebrate Christmas? Can we eat pork? Can we go to church on Sunday, et cetera, et cetera. And so when the schism, the conflict, whatever, when it caught up with my congregation, my congregation happened to go more mainline. So they went to become more similar to Methodist or Presbyterian or something like that, right? Congregationalist, something like that. And my family wasn't feeling it. So my family stepped away and we quote unquote, practice from home and did our own thing from home because we didn't believe in like mainline Protestant theology and practice. And that lasted a few years, I guess. But pretty quickly, my family, my words backslid to to mainline Christian practice, you know, to being just sort of nominal, I don't know, Protestants. So eating pork and going and worshiping with like evangelicals on Sunday and celebrating Christmas, et cetera, et cetera. And so I would kind of quietly check out of the movement when I was, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12. So a few years after the schism, my family's backsliding. I'm an early adolescent. I'm having all these questions. I've been had all these questions. And then seeing like the backsliding, again, my words, or change. I don't know. I don't know how you say that without a negative connotation. I don't mean to be particularly negative, but when you're raised in quote unquote, <laughs> when you're raised in the one true church, quote unquote, as a little kid, and they tell you that you, that this is the correct way and every other way is incorrect to the point of, you know, fucking damnation and whatnot. It was a little tough to see them eating fucking bacon. <laughs> it was a little tough to see them like worshiping with Baptists on Sunday. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So anyways, I I don't mean to cast shade, but I don't know. I guess there is a shadow. Even if I don't mean to cast shade, there is a shadow. Or throw shade, cast shadow, empty ways. Throw shade. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, darling. <laughs> That's why you're here, to help me with my English. <laughs> if it comes from my community, the queer community, I got you down. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. So... um. Yeah. So I quietly check out in my early adolescence years. I quietly check out because the church had already schismed. We had already backslid. And I just kind of went into, for want of a better phrase, agnosticism, but that's not really the best phrase. But yeah, that's that. But to rewind a little bit, what is the Worldwide Church of God? So like I say, it was founded by this dude um, and it was, how do you say, their Rome or their Salt Lake City. Their center of gravity was in Pasadena, California, so in Southern California. I'm not sure if he was from there or not, or that's just where he built his seminary and like the big church and all that shit. 
it's really it's an offshoot of Seventh Day Adventism. He wouldn't agree with that because he would say that he's just fully, <laughs> you know, fully inspired. But nah, mm-hmm. bro, like it's an offshoot. It's a sect of a sect of a sect of Seventh Day Adventism. But it definitely does have Mormon characteristics as well as kind of like Jehovah Witness characteristics. Again, all of these movements are curious Protestant American religious movements. So it, it makes sense that there's a lot of similarities there. What I can remember of it, because again, I experienced this as a child and I was an adult and I didn't do a lot of research as an adult. I did a little bit in seminary, but most of my experiences as a child and not dissimilar to Seventh-day Adventist, we identified as Christians. However, we tried to practice in the way that we imagined Jesus would have practiced in his day, which is to say Jewish practice. So as a kid, I grew up eating kosher. I grew up celebrating the Sabbath on Saturday. I didn't celebrate any of the Christian holidays. So Christmas, Easter, any of that stuff. Instead, I grew up celebrating all the Jewish liturgical holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Passover, etc. We It was sort of an anglicized version, you know, like a, a white version, so to speak, an Americanized version of it. So we, rather than saying Hebrew words, we would say the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of the long and short of it. We also, not dissimilar from Jewish folks, we had our high holy days. I mean, it was the Jewish high holy days. So we would travel, we tried to travel every year and we would go, not dissimilar from Jews, like gathering for the high holy days, we would travel and gather and congregate together in large numbers to do our thing sort of like a hodge so to speak from the muslim <laughs> community and that's kind of what differentiates it from other protestant christianity we're very anti-papist you know very anti-catholic but you're protestant you can't can't, can't get around that <laughs> um, <laughs> i remember like i hated church lol and then i go to seminarian you know, study to be a minister, but it'd be like that. I hated church, but I did love the tradition. You know, like it felt good to belong. It felt good to have sort of an identity group. Still to this day, like my Christianity, like what's still left intact in me is very Jewish. I think that approach to Christianity makes complete sense to me that Christianity without Judaism means nothing. And supersessionism is complete fucking bullshit. And for for folks that I get so <laughs> it's like one of the few things I can get enraged about is supersessionism, which uh-huh. for for folks that don't know what the fifteen dollar word means, supersessionism is the is the Christian belief that their covenant, the Christian covenant, supersedes the Jewish covenant. And I just, I'm just not having that. I do not like that shit. And we didn't either. You know the faith that I was raised in, and so. Yeah, I like I say I hated church, but I but I love the tradition, and that actually might speak a lot to my current experience of organized religion, and for that matter, Christianity. That I don't really fancy the church, but I do. I belong to the tradition. Like I am a product of the West. I'm the product of Christendom. I'm a product of Protestantism. I'm a product of Americanism, and I'm a product of this queer fucking. A sect of Seventh Day Adventism, which is called the Worldwide Church of God, and yeah, like I say, I left the church when I was in my early adolescence, and my journey goes on from there. And I could obviously talk about you know my faith as an adult and how did my birth religion, my religion of origin, how did that impact me? But I pass it over to you, L, for questions or if you want to do a similar thing. Also, yeah. thanks for asking. What a what a great question and what a cool opportunity to to spout out for ten or fifteen minutes about it. Yeah, um, I guess I'll do a similar thing um, and just kind of describe my background. I grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, commonly known as the Mormons, although they have done a rebrand to try to get rid of that word. I'll talk about that later because I think it's hilarious, and I'm not <laughs> going along with it. Uh, <laughs> but do you prefer one, one term? I was taught to be proud of the word Mormon growing up. Just like that was a word that they literally branded and marketed. And now they're trying to say that it's an offensive slur and it's, and I'm like, hmm. you literally were branding it the day before you came out with that statement. <laughs> like you had a <laughs> website called mormon.org you had an entire pr campaign called i am a mormon 
No, it's not a slur. (laughs) So what would you like? What would you call yourself like as an adherent? Would you call yourself a Christian or like a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints or the way that growing up, I would describe myself was I would either say I'm a Mormon or I would say I'm LDS, Latter-day Saint. Mm. And those are kind of the two ways that growing up people refer to each other. And then they had this whole PR campaign in 2018 where they said that if you use the word Mormon, Satan wins. That was a literal message from the prophet of the church. Um, And then then they (laughs) also said that you can't say LDS anymore, that you have to refer to yourself as a Latter-day Saint. And when you're talking about the church, you have to use the full name of the church. And then you can either refer to it as the church or god's church or the lord's church and i'm like i'm not going to be doing any of that sorry christ (laughs) christ so what's the issue i mean i'm interrupting so much but um Um, what's the issue what's why why is mormon bad and why is lds bad the issue is that this current prophet doesn't like the words he feels that it Uh, all tracks from christ hmm. He, he wants it all to be formal and to only use the formal name of the church and everything, and that Mormon takes away from the centering of Christ that he's really trying to push, which has not always been a huge thing. That's much more of a more recent development in the Mormon church trying to be seen more as a legitimate Christian church rather than its own movement, which was not always the case. Like, the generation before me, they used to call themselves a peculiar people. Like that was a oh yeah, I'm remembering honor. you telling me about that. Yeah, so they would call themselves the peculiar people, and up until just before I was born, they would call people who weren't Mormon Gentiles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Gentile. <laughs> let's go (laughs) so would um, they call for example would they call a baptist a gentile yes oh my god anyone who was not mormon they were called gentiles i Um, love that for you (laughs) there was a street in this uh one of the neighboring cities next to where i grew up the street was called gentile because that's where the non-mormons in the city originally was it was it (laughs) was it literally like the city named it that, or it was colloquially called that. That's, it, that's the name of the street, Gentile <laughs> <laughs> Street. Oh, and, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, but they they kind of dropped that in the seventies, I think. And so when I was a kid, mm-hmm. Gentile turned into <laughs> non-member, and that kind of stuck for a while. Although. From what I've been told, they've been trying to get away from that, too. We'll see how successful that goes. <laughs> well, if they're if they're doing this, like, rebranding campaign of trying to be more palatable to the, like, American Protestant ear and tongue, it would make sense that, like, non-member – it would make sense that that wouldn't, no, they, that wouldn't ring a, well. No, because there's an us versus them thing, which is set up in their theology, which I'll get into. But I grew up Mormon – in Utah. I lived in Ogden, Utah. My ancestors actually were the Mormons who settled Ogden. They were one of the families that settled Ogden. And my family tried to make that sound really like proud and appealing and stuff. And then I found out that like we were involved in like <laughs> bootlegging and all this other shady stuff at the turn of the century. And Ogden used to be like the Las Vegas of its day because it was a hub for the Transcontinental Railroad. But then okay. once aviation took off, then Ogden just tanked, and it's never really recovered from that. And most people don't know anything about Ogden mm. now. But my ancestors in Ogden were apparently involved in a lot of the really shady underground parts of Ogden. <laughs> Probably literally. There are literally right. underground tunnels in Ogden that for a lot of the shady shit that went on. <laughs> so that's my family on my dad's side anyway. My family on my mom's side are like hardy Mormon stock that crossed the plains and came to Utah. I have family whose name is on This Is The Place Monument, which is this huge monument to Brigham Young and the Mormon pioneers coming into the Salt Lake Valley. 
So my family goes all the way back to the beginning of the movement. I also have family who came here from England and Wales, went a very long way all the way to San Francisco around South America. This is before the Panama Canal was built. So they they went from England down around South America up to San Francisco and then crossed the Sierras and the Nevada desert to get here. So my family is as Mormon as it gets in lineage anyway. You know, I, I have quite the pedigree of Mormonism. That said, my dad's side of the family were what colloquially we call Jack Mormons. So those are the Mormons who are, you know, they've been baptized as Mormons. They maybe have darkened the doorway of a church twice in the past decade or so. And they don't really follow the commandments of the church. So, like, they'll drink, they'll smoke, they'll have premarital sex, whatever. But the, I think I think some communities will yeah, call them like I've Easter heard Christians. I've like heard, in, <laughs> yeah, but okay, right, right. It, so it, it's that it's that yeah, version it's that for version for Mormons. Mormons. My dad's family had kind of become Jack Mormons. I think probably from the years of bootlegging and things. But my mom's side of the family was a little more devout. Um, but I grew up in a house that was kind of halfway between devout and Jack Mormon where we had periods Mm -hmm. where we would go to church and periods where we wouldn't, but even in the periods where we wouldn't, we still professed to be believing people, but my dad never really went. It was my mom and us kids who would go. And I took it much more seriously than a lot of my family. I was the one going every Sunday, and I really, truly believed. I was very invested in it, and that all started to unravel in my teens. I went on a trip to Europe, and one of the first places I went was the Vatican, and I grew Mm -hmm. up believing that I was a member of the one true church, and this was God's church on (sighs) earth. And then I saw the Vatican. Mm. I saw the heart of Catholicism. And I'm like, I'm just like getting flushed with Kundalini or Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, from my experience of looking Mm -hmm. up the Sistine Chapel and like almost fainting. Yeah, that kind of thing. I remember being in St. Peter's and just feeling overwhelmed in this sort of, yeah. Mm, I wept. I wept. And because you're saying, uh, St. Peter's Basilica yeah. outside of the it, Vatican. And seeing this church that spanned 2,000 years, and my church at best, not <laughs> even 170 at that point. And I was just like, what is this? So I came back and I just had to know about Catholicism because it fascinated me that seeing this institution. Um, and I assume Mormons are pretty, or at least worthy papal. Yes. I, not as like vitriolically anti-papal <laughs> as like some Protestants I've encountered, but Mormons would say that any, all right. So here's the basic belief of the restoration. They believe that Joseph Smith, who was a man who lived in Palmyra, New York, that he was visited by an angel named Moroni and that he uncovered gold plates in the earth that had a record of the ancient peoples in America who had come here originally from Jerusalem and that these ancient peoples were ancient Jews living in America waiting for the Messiah to come and that Jesus did on his way up from the Ascension stop over in the Americas and teach the Nephites, who were the tribe that they said were living righteously, and then Mm -hmm. he ascended up into heaven. And Joseph Smith said that he translated this text, and it became what's called the Book of Mormon, which is a companion piece to the Bible for Mormons. A lot of people think that the Book of Mormon is the Mormon version of the Bible, and it's not. It's a separate book. Mormons still have the Bible. Mormons still believe in the Bible. The Book of Mormon is an added text to that canon. So, 
the belief is is that Joseph Smith translated this book, and then John the Baptist comes and ordains him to the Aaronic priesthood, and then right after, hey, let's go, Aaron. Yep, the priesthood of Aaron, and then right after that, Peter, James, and John come and ordain (laughs) popular guy. Yeah, ordain him to the Melchizedek priesthood, the higher priesthood, and that the priesthood is now restored on earth. Prior to all of this with the angel visiting and everything, Joseph Smith says that he was visited by God the Father and Jesus Christ in bodily form, and that the two of them said that all of the churches on earth were abominations and taught doctrines that were displeasing. Mormons believe that Jesus came and that he taught the truth and the fullness of the gospel to his apostles. And he gave them the priesthood, the um, Melchizedek priesthood, the higher priesthood. And that after the apostles died, things started getting corrupted and that the church fell into apostasy by somewhere in the second century. And that because the church fell into apostasy, God took the priesthood and all of the blessings from it. And that's what led to the dark ages, they said. And that the priesthood remained off of the earth until Joseph Smith, when it was restored through him. So, they say that all of the other churches are the great and abominable churches, or the great (laughs) and abominable church, and that, like, Catholicism (laughs) is, like, the great and abominable church, but that any church that is not the Mormon church is part of that, and that they teach false doctrines, and that their priesthoods and institutions are false priesthoods. So, a Unitarian minister is just as at fault of being in a false priesthood as a Catholic bishop <laughs> in Mormonism. So, yes, anti-papist, but also kind of anti-everything else. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. But... I had to know more about Catholicism. I went to the library. I checked out every book they had on it. Did your family know you were doing that? Yeah. And my mom just thought, oh, you know, they're just curious. The, the, this will be fine. <laughs> uh, then, it's, just, it's just an intellectual curiosity. Exactly. And then I started studying religion in general after that. And that led me to really start questioning the claims of Mormonism, like why would God send Jesus Christ to, you know, have this fullness of the gospel only to a century later, have it be wiped from the earth and have to wait till the 1830s mm. for it to, to come back. You know, that's a long stretch of time for God to be absent from the world. <laughs> right. For this random dude in New York. Yeah, and I also couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get down with the concepts of God that Mormons had. It all sounded very bizarre to me and didn't match with my experiences of what I would call the divine or whatever. And I started really doubting the church and then ended up ultimately leaving when I was 18. And I was the first one in my family to ever publicly leave the church. And that did not go over well. And I was because when you because when you left, you eventually did a whole public thing with literal paperwork. It was a a I had my name removed from the church's records. Yes, and I formally renounced it. And I I know people who like have left the church and been kind of quiet about it. That was not my MO. That's never been my MO. I'm never quiet about anything. My friend Lisa called it my public divorce from the church. Because <laughs> it was it was pretty public and pretty messy. And I was ostracized from my community. The whole thing was just very, very hard on me at the time. People I thought were my friends disappeared and pretended they didn't know me. And had a lot of fights with my family. Yeah, so a lot of people I know leave the church and they've left it quietly and just don't practice. (laughs) Uh I 
I'm not that kind of person. Not that kind of girl. (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm the girl who will very loudly do everything in my life. And that's gotten me into trouble. It's also been a very good asset. But my friend Lisa calls me leaving the church at 18, my very public divorce from the church. um, (laughs) Because that is really what it was. I left. My family was not happy about it. We had a lot of fights for many years about it. There's still things that my family brings up that and will fight me about. I also was ostracized from my community. A lot of people that I thought were my friends or were going to be there for me through anything disappeared. Some people would see me in the grocery store and turn their cart around and walk away. Ugh. And that was hard. And then about a year and a half after that, I had my name officially removed from the church's records. So, At your behest. I requested it. I wrote them a letter. There's a whole process to get your name removed from the church. They send you a bunch of guilt mail and all that. <laughs> and I, I remember when they said, you know, this will invalidate your baptism. I'm like, like basically like saying that it never happened. I'm like, good. Uh, well, if you're lucky, they'll go ahead and baptize you without your permission after the fact. So I oh, think you'll be Yeah, fine. I know that's going to happen. That's something I'm keenly aware of but that was kind of my exodus from the mormon church i've now been out of the church as long well i've now been out of the church officially longer than i ever was in it i passed that threshold in may of this past year which is really bizarre for me to think because it dominated the entire first half of my life and I never thought I would be away from it, and now I've been away from it longer than I ever was in it. And I remember just growing up, and the church seemed so all-powerful. Like They told me that the priesthood, that the people who were in the priesthood literally spoke for God, like the prophet of the church. Literally, they Mormons believe the prophet of the church is God's mouthpiece on earth. And they believe that what he says is what Jesus would be saying now. And many Mormons believe that the prophet has one-on-one visits with Jesus Christ and God the Father. So, growing up, I feared the priesthood because I was afraid that they had all this power and I was afraid of what they would do. And I grew up as a queer person and... They teach that same-sex relationships are, so in Protestantism, sin is sin, right? All sin is sin in the eyes of God. So whether that's, you know, you swore or whether you committed murder, sin is sin kind of thing. We don't have, because it's cardinal and venial is the language that Catholics have? Yeah, or no, um, mortal and venial. Mortal and venial. Okay. Mortal sins damn you to hell. Venial sins send you to purgatory for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and in Catholicism, to be a mortal sin, it has to be grave nature, done with full knowledge that it was a sin and full intention of sinning. Those are the three criteria. Oh. Catholicism. That's actually not bad, but keep going. Yeah. But in Mormonism, there is a hierarchy of sin as well. So, like, you know, you stubbed your toe and said a curse word. That's a sin. But that's not as bad as, you know, you cheated on your taxes kind of thing. And cheated on your taxes is not as bad as, you know, you cheated on your wife. So on and so forth. But there's three big sins. The three, like, horrible sins. There's the unforgivable sin of denial of the Holy Spirit, which Mormons teach, basically, you had to have God appear to you in person and then deny God's existence. So, Mm. the likelihood of you committing that sin is next to impossible in their theology. It is completely unforgivable. You can never atone for that sin. You're just fucked. You're you're fucked once (laughs) once you deny the Holy Spirit. The second worst sin and the one that you could commit realistically is murder and then they teach that any kind of sexual sin whatsoever is the sin next whoa to yeah. whoa so that's masturbation that's sex before marriage that's cheating on your spouse mm. 
etc. That's the okay. sin. That's the sin next to murder, and they teach that homosexuality is not only in the sin against sin next to murder; it's the crime against nature, is what they call it. And so it's sort of like in this subcategory of being even higher than the sin next to murder. And there's this horrible book that one of the prophets of the Mormon Church wrote, Spencer W. Kimball. It's called The Miracle of Forgiveness. This is a terrible book. It sounds bad. It sounds bad. (laughs) There's an entire chapter in there about how parents would prefer to see their kids on their funeral beers than to find out that they committed sexual sin. And there's an entire chapter about the crime against nature and homosexuality and everything. Tangent, but what do you what do you think? I mean, feel free to finish your thought, obviously. But what do you think the obsession with sex? Because it's not limited to Mormonism, but it's pretty it's particularly pronounced there. Like, where do you think that comes from? Sociologically, psychologically, theologically, what the fuck ever? Because it's it's bizarre, you know, from someone from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. It's fucking bizarre. It is bizarre, and I think with Mormonism, it has to do with how. Honestly, I think it goes back to their history with polygamy Mm. and how sort of sexually deviant that was seen by the rest of society as, but Hmm. also how patriarchal it was and how much it had basically the ownership of women built into it, that anything that would deviate from it was seen as satanic almost, because polygamy is called in Mormon scripture, celestial marriage, and it is said to be the new and everlasting covenant. That it is the sort of final part of the restoration. That it will never be... Mormon scripture says it will never be abolished from the earth, and then in 1890 it gets abolished. How do they clean it up, so to speak? Like, after it's been abolished, like, what's the theological reasoning the theological reasoning was that the federal government marched <laughs> into came with Utah guns and the prophet of the church had to go into hiding. That's the- <laughs> and then they brought the guns. The it's it's not true anymore. <laughs> has a revelation that it's it's not true anymore. And was it they- true previously or was it never true? What do you mean? Like, what's doctrine? Is it doctrine that that was never true? It was a false teaching? Or no, is it it's true doctrine that-, that it was true teaching. Right. New and covenant. that the revelation that the prophet got said that it was <laughs> ended. <laughs> but here's the thing is the church never actually officially really got rid of polygamy. They just moved it to the afterlife. Because Mormons believe that you are married forever. If you get married in the temple, you are married for time and all eternity. So if a man loses his wife and gets married to another woman in the temple, he is married to both of them in the celestial kingdom forever. Not the same if a, for a woman, though. A woman can only be married to one man. And that was true in Mormon polygamy from the word go. So a woman, if she was widowed, she couldn't remarry? She could remarry, but not in the temple. And it would only be for this life. Interesting. So, like, Are, do marriages, like, say, if you're living in Salt Lake, do marriages typically take place in the temple as opposed to the church? Yeah. So, Mormons have two houses of worship. They have the church, which they also call meeting houses, although you almost only hear them called churches now. When I was growing up, the two terms were interchangeable and, like, from the 60s back to the early part of the movement, it was almost always called a meeting house, not a church. But nowadays, they just kind of call them churches. And there you have worship on Sunday. It looks very, like, reformed in its worship. It's very, it's the hymn sandwich. There's communion every Sunday, which they call the sacrament. When you say reformed, are you referring to, like, Calvinism? Yeah, it looks a lot like Calvinist worship. The hymns are very traditional, usually played on a piano. Some churches have organs. And a lot of the Protestant hymns you'll hear in there, but there's also a lot of really unique Mormon hymns 
like the spirit of God or follow the prophet and so on. The other house of worship they have are called temples. And these are grand structures. If you see them, they look like castles. They're usually made of granite or some kind of other stone. They're usually white. They're huge. They have spires and only Mormons who pass worthiness interviews can go in these temples. No one else is allowed in them. Even Mormons who you have to be at least 18 to enter the temple, unless you're doing baptisms for the dead, in which case you can do it when you're 12, but you can only go to (laughs) certain parts of the temple. Why was I allowed into the one in Oakland? Because they had done renovations on it. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing an open house before they dedicated it. Oh, so it wasn't sacralized yet, therefore I was allowed in. Yep, but once it's dedicated, only members who hold temple recommends, is what they call them, can go. Interesting. Okay. So, in the temples, there's not really worship like you would conceptualize it in Christianity. Instead, there are a series of secret rituals that are done. Mormons would say that they are sacred, not secret, but they are completely secret. You're told that if you reveal them, that you're damned, basically. And you're not supposed to speak about anything that happens in the temple outside of the temple. The main ceremony is called an endowment ceremony. And Mormons believe that if they go through this ceremony, then they are, uh, as long as they live righteously, destined for the highest kingdom. So are they going to plan it? Yes that they will become gods of their own worlds, basically. The ceremony is basically, they go in, they wear special clothing, they get washed and anointed, washed with water and anointed with olive oil. And then they go to a room that's basically an auditorium, and they watch a video that's their version of the Genesis creation story. Mm Mm-hmm. And during certain parts of the video, they put on certain clothing and stuff, and then they make covenants, and then at the end, there's a veil, and they go up to the veil, and they're taught secret handshakes that they're told that they will need to have to get to the highest kingdom, that angels will ask them on these handshakes and the names of women's stuff, and then they're pulled through the veil, and they go into a room called the Celestial Room, which in most temples is the most sacred room. It basically looks like a really nice hotel lobby. And they are told that this is like the closest that you'll ever get to God on earth. And they can go in there and pray and meditate for a few minutes and leave. That's the endowment ceremony in a nutshell. And you left the movement before you would have done that? Yes, I left the year before I would have done that. Because most men go through the temple when they're used to be 19. Now it's 18 when they go on their mission. So just before they go on the missions, the first time that they go to the temple. And women usually go through the temple for the first time on their wedding day. Like, that's kind of the (laughs) standard Uh, Um, MS. Women don't go on mission? Women can go on missions, but they used to be they couldn't go on a mission until they were 21. Now they can go when they are 20. And boys have to, or they're... Boys are expected to. They're expected to. They don't have to, but they are expected to. And women are really not expected to. They're expected to get married. Mormons marry very young, very, very young. They're expected to get married and start having kids basically out of high school. But if they make it to 20 and are not married, well, you can go on a mission, I guess. And is mission sort of similar to like what evangelicals would do? You go and do some, some work in some community? Not really. It's you've seen Mormon missionaries. Everyone's seen them. The guys in the suits with the name tags. Yeah, um, I've had some fascinating conversations with them. <laughs> yeah. So the church sends you to a place, and they decide where it will be. It can be somewhere stateside, or it can be in a foreign mission. And you're expected to pay your way for that. By the way. Uh-huh. Oh. Yep. Oh. The church does have like a missionary fund for people who can't afford the mission, like to supplement it and stuff. But if you can, you're supposed to pay your own way for that for two years. The mission is two years. It's 18 months for women and two years for men. And um, 
during that time, you are not really supposed to have contact with people back home except via letter, and you can call home on Mother's Day and Christmas. <laughs> Mother's Day and Christmas. All right. Mother's Day and Christmas. But you are supposed to spend, you're supposed to get up early in the morning, pretty much before the sun rises, get ready, do scripture study with your mission companion. You are assigned a person to be with 24 7 through your mission. You're always supposed to be within eyesight of each other and never more than a few feet away from each other. The person you're assigned to, are they, quote, parallel to you, like another young yeah. man on mission? Okay. Yeah, it's not like a mentor or something. Yeah, okay. and then there's a mission leader who's an older person assigned to oversee the mission and everything. But you get up, you do, you get ready, you do scripture study for like an hour, and then you go out and you proselytize all day. You go and knock on doors. <laughs> you go and talk to people in the streets, and you basically try to convert them to Mormonism. You do this until dark, and then you go to sleep and do it again. I mean, there's eating in between and stuff, but you do this every day except Sunday, and you have one personal day during the week where you're supposed to like wash your clothes and get you know prepared and stuff. So you do that for two years. Jesus. Do they train you in the art of proselytizing or they just yes. kind of throw you, throw you to the wolves? No, they, there's a place called the Missionary Training Center, which is in Provo, Utah. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So you're sent there first, and it's a crash course. So if you're going to a foreign mission, they fully immerse you in the language. Oh, wow. Okay. It's actually one of the most effective uh, foreign language programs in the world, the Missionary Training Center people okay. who go to the missionary training center become proficient in a language in a matter of weeks actually there's a lot of foreign language speakers in utah because of that because i imagine if they're trying to if they're trying to proselytize effectively one you need to know the language and two you need to know a functional language you, you need to know how to speak to people colloquially yeah. conversationally it's not it doesn't need to be academic or intellectual like we need you to be able to communicate with these folks basically yeah. They give you like, I don't remember how long they keep you in the missionary training center. Can't remember if it's weeks or months or whatever, but they send you to the missionary training center and then they send you out to wherever you don't have contact with home. You don't have contact with anyone. And they have a lot of really strict rules. Like you're not supposed to be out after dark. You're not supposed to go swimming. You're not supposed to play sports except on your personal day. You're not supposed to listen to, quote, worldly music. Um, you're not supposed to watch television. You're not supposed to read newspapers. You're not supposed to go to movies. You're not supposed to do all of these things. Basically, your life is completely dedicated to the church and to the mission for two years. Is there, so within the community, is there, how do you say, a value judgment or a hierarchy of young men who went on mission versus young men who didn't, and they're kind of given more social capital? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. 100%. And does that show up in, because in like Mormonism, there's a belief of the priesthood of all believers and. Oh, no, 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 not in Mormonism. <laughs> oh, okay. Well then help me out here. In Mormonism, there's a lot of like lay leadership. So yes, but it's yes and no. In Mormonism, you have lay people who are ordained into the priesthood, but they are ordained. So, like, there's no seminary or any, well, there's a program for high schoolers called seminary, but it's not what you think. It's <laughs> right. more like a religious education program. Whereas with Mormonism, so people are ordained, well, men, it's, all, it's only men. Men are ordained starting at age 12, you're ordained as a deacon. <laughs> Is there a like a sacrament, a ritual, or is it just the case? If you're 12, it's already done. There's a ritual. So you have to go to your bishop, which is basically like a pastor in most churches. So you have to go to your bishop and have an interview, and he has to determine that you're worthy to hold the priesthood. And then after the interview, the congregation has to sustain you as a priesthood holder. 
And basically all that is, is the bishop presents the candidate and says, any who support this person becoming a member of the priesthood, raise your hand. Everyone raises their hand and then they say, any opposed by the same sign, no one ever really raises their hand. And then they take you in the bishop's office after the service and the bishop and other members of the priesthood put their hands on your head and ordain you. So you're ordained a deacon when you're 12. Teacher is the next office, and that's when you're 14. And then a priest is the next office, and that's when you are 16. And this is the Aaronic priesthood, the lower priesthood. And then when you're 18, you are ordained an elder, and that's the lowest office in the Melchizedek priesthood, which is the higher priesthood. And you are most Mormon men remain an elder, but then there's, you might be called as a bishop or a high priest. And then you have the quorum of the 12 apostles at the very top of it. And above them is the first presidency. So the quorum of the 12 apostles and the three men who make up the first presidency are all the most senior members of the church. And the, the one who's the head of the first presidency, the most senior of those three, he is the prophet of the church. He's God's mouthpiece on earth. So not really a lay priesthood or a priesthood of all believers. It is a priesthood of men. And virtually all Mormon men hold some priesthood office. I see where my Protestant brain like mixed that up because yeah. as a young like the young men in the movement, they're quickly integrated into at least to some degree integrated into like the ecclesiastical structure. Right. But women are forbidden to hold the priesthood and actually suggesting that women should be able to hold the priesthood is seen as an act of defiance against the leadership of the church and could lead you to be excommunicated. I know people who have been excommunicated for that. Yeah. They say that women's gift from God is childbirth and that he had nothing left over but the priesthood for men is what they said <laughs> um, women make new creation men i guess rule it because <laughs> yeah. they say the priesthood is the authority to act on god's behalf on earth so really you can't separate the church from the priesthood they are one and the same in mormon theology hmm <laughs> So we've heard a lot about a little bit about your upbringing in it, a lot about the ecclesiastical structures, the theology, the history, et cetera, et cetera. Two questions. <laughs> One, where do you, I'm 37. I assume you're 37. Yep. So where do you as an adult, a proper adult, where do you find yourself in the movement adjacent to the movement, throwing holy water, <laughs> unholy water back at the movement? What's your relationship to it now? And two, I literally just heard today, never heard the shit in my life. My boss at my job mentioned that apparently the author of the Twilight series of books and later films was a Mormon and that a lot of Mormon, I guess, tropes or themes are played out in the text so i'm super fucking curious when i learned that i'm like oh i have to ask l <laughs> so where are you now with the movement and tell me about twilight where i am with the movement now is i spent many years distancing myself as much as i could from the movement yeah and like you do as as i did yeah i actually even went through an angry atheist phase after a while um Fair. and i ended up in seminary at the end of that <laughs> <laughs> I just about spit my Earl Grey out. <laughs> and then found God in seminary, imagine. <laughs> well, I mean, like you do. Yeah, but I then realized that Mormonism is my heritage. Like, it's mm. it formed me. It is literally generations of my family. We go back to the beginning of this movement. And Mormonism's not like other movements. Like, it's not like being a Presbyterian. It's not like being a Methodist. It's not like it's such a different animal that really right. only someone who is from the movement can understand. And I realized that my people was not just the people who were actively in the Mormon church, that my people were all of the people 
who mm. were part of this greater Latter-day Saint movement, including the ex-Mormons. And realizing that, I, I had to figure out where my place was in that. And I ended up joining Community of Christ, which is like a really ultra-liberal branch of Mormonism that separated from the it and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which settled in Utah, separated from each other after Joseph Smith died. So it goes all the way back to, it's not like an offshoot of the LDS church. It's its own church that has the same origins. They share 15 years originally, and then went in two very different directions. Kind of like the Sunni and the Shia. But this branch has been a lot more honest about their history. They look much more like mainline Protestants. They're really very non-credal now and very liberal and very inclusive, very inclusive of my queer identity, a number of other things. And also being a branch of Mormonism, they still have the priesthood. And I'm part of a movement within the church to kind of take down the priesthood. (laughs) (laughs) My rebellious streak continues. I'm not the church's favorite person right now, but whatever. They're not going to excommunicate me, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you consider yourself a member of that church? Like, is that? Yeah, I'm fully a member of the church. I was confirmed a member of the church, so I am fully on record with the church. I and in your heart as well. Like, not only you know, for better or worse, these are my people. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm at with Mormonism in general. I'm like, for better or worse, these are my people. I don't ascribe to the church in Salt Lake. I realized in this sort of expansion of my way of thinking about the Latter-day Saint movement that the church in Salt Lake is only a part of it. Hmm. I describe me coming to Community of Christ as me having a very abusive relationship with my birth family and you know, having to have a healthy separation and distance from them, but then finding out I had a really cool cousin over here in Community of Christ. And so I think it's real quick. I think it's so important to like lift up that, you know, whether it's Mormonism, whether it's worldwide church of God, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Americanism, whether it's liberal, like whatever, whatever a symbolic community might be, an identity community, a religious community might be. There's these, and forgive me for being fucking heady. There's these hegemonic apparatuses, apparati. There's people that hold power, right? So like in your case, Salt Lake City holds power. And they wield power to, amongst other things, to stomp out anything else. And it can make you feel like you're either with them or you're against them. But I think it's really beautiful and important that you have the experience of like, no, this is a bigger fucking tent, like you yeah. can't control this tent. You can't you can't colonize this tent or whatever that that this is a much larger thing and you were able to find that and to claim that. And I just think that's so fucking important. Yeah. And that's that's my reality now with the movement. And what's great about Community of Christ is I because I very much believe that Joseph Smith was a charlatan. I very much believe that he did a lot of unethical things. I also think that there's a lot of very interesting theological things that he believed and created that inform me still to this day, even though I don't think he was a prophet. But in Community of Christ, that's an okay opinion to have. I don't have to feel any particular way about the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, etc. I can have my own feelings, my own thoughts, and be fine in the church. So... Whereas that would cause me to be excommunicated in the LDS church. Right. And so Community of Christ ended up being a really good fit for me and a way to embrace a lot of my heritage without having to give up everything about myself. You know, every time we go down this rabbit hole, now that you found your way, for want of a better phrase, you found your way back home. I mean, just literally, figuratively, find your way back home. Every time we have this conversation, it it hits me in a way of like, I wonder what that might look like for me. And I did do some recon- – I damn did a lot of reconciliation with Christianity, with Jesus, with the Abrahamic faiths, et cetera, et cetera, and definitely understand myself as part of that in some important fucking way. But 
still very much on the outskirts. And I do wonder from time to time. And when I speak to you, that wondering comes very much to the foreground of what it would look like to step into that more conscious, more consciously, because I don't know, there's certainly a safety being on the outside of the tribe, but there's also, Hmm. I don't know how to say it. There's a safety for me to be on the outside of the tribe, but there's also, there might be something missing as well to step back in and say, you know what? I might be, (laughs) I might be a heathen. I might be an apostate. I might be all these things. And I'm one of you. That's simply the case. And there's some place where that needs to be reconciled. There's some flesh where that needs to be reconciled. Right. And it's been incredibly healing. And I've wondered that about, your path too like what would that look like with reconciliation particularly since you know the church is defunct and it was always a small movement to begin with yeah i mean it's there there's a how do you say a sect of it that survived from what my i guess i i googled it a little bit read some wikipedia stuff my father is still somewhat involved in it but i think the main branch that has survived is it's pretty much mainline it's like methodist or something and I just have no connection to that. You know, I, I'll go to mainline Christian services from time to time, particularly if I'm like, if I have a lover who's Christian or if I, you know, like when I was in seminary, you know, I would go do that or I'll just do it from time to time. But I really have no connection to that. Alternatively, like I took my father to a seven day Adventist church a couple years ago and, and I felt an immediate connection of like, okay, <laughs> like this Anglo Christian wrestling and reconciling with the Jewish tradition that started this whole Abrahamic thing. That makes sense to me. That's a thing that I understand myself in and that, I don't know, it just fucking makes sense to me. So stay tuned, friends. <laughs> stay tuned for Aaron's adventures. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but before we go, before we go, and we could talk about this shit forever. I mean, I, Every, I mean, there's so many times where I just was like, don't ask the question, Aaron, because you're going to go down a whole another rabbit <laughs> hole. We can talk about this shit forever. But before we go, I want to hear about Twilight and Mormonism. Yes. Thoughts and feelings. So Stephanie Meyer, who wrote Twilight, she is a Mormon. There is a lot of... Like actively identifies as a Mormon or... Yeah, she does. All right. And if you read Curious. more... Curious. <laughs> I like knowing about this sort of Mormon lens. It's very yeah. clear sort of the Mormon worldview that you see in it. I mean, it's a book about a sparkly vampire prince and a, you know, but like not that. And there's not really like theological underpinnings of Mormonism in there, but there is a lot of culture in there that is definitely very Mormon. For instance, getting married really young in that book, the no sex before marriage thing that happens in that it's basically chastity porn and they have to get married first in order to have sex and that doesn't have chastity porn (laughs) Um, okay (laughs) and then um there's this element that you know you are defined by the man that you're like mormon women are expected to be wives and mothers and mormon men are expected to be the heads of the household that is still the ideal that they push and the man being the priesthood holder is in charge and the woman is underneath him up until past 10 years the temple ceremony said that wives need to obey their husbands as they would cry as their husbands obey christ and like it's a you know people talk about a lot of the like negative relationship tropes and stuff in twilight they're very mormon You know, this idea that a man is your entire world and that you, you know, the character of Bella is kind of a blank slate for Edward to really kind of do whatever he wants. And there's this whole love triangle thing and she has to choose one or the other. And being in love and in a relationship is the ultimate goal and the most important thing. And, you know, any sort of negative relationship trope that you've heard critiqued in Twilight is present in Mormon culture. Did I lose you? No, I was just <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I was just. I, I guess I was just meditating on listening to you. One, but two, sort of the question. One of the questions that I asked earlier in our conversation of like, why is Mormonism, and it's not just Mormonism, many other religious traditions, just obsessed with 
sex, relationships, marriage, family, that sort of thing. And I don't even, again, I don't cast or throw shade with that question. It's it's a really earnest fucking question. I will cast and throw <laughs> shade and shadow um, when it's fucking sick. You know, for example, you were saying that up until recently in the temple that it was explicitly stated you have to obey this man the way he obeys Christ. That's fucking dumb. But I don't know. It's fascinating that, you know, I'm very much on the left. And so I my gender and sexual mores <laughs> aren't exactly Mormon. You know, they aren't exactly conservative or traditional. And at the same time, I don't know, a lot of people find a lot of meaning in it, you know, and sex does matter and gender does matter and relationships and families and all that shit, you know, it does matter. So I don't know. I grew silent because I don't know. I'm just stumbling into this aspect of life that it, I have more questions than I have answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's where I'm at too. I have more questions than answers. I have, I think that the more you explore the divine, the less you realize, you know, and mm. that's kind of where I've settled on this whole thing is that God's a mystery. Oh, well, okay i absolutely have to bring it to a close there god is a mystery oh well (laughs) oh my gosh um but for real though it has been a pleasure as always darling to spend some time with you and to talk with you and to share space with you and to hear about your background and to see myself in it, you know, or at the very least see myself adjacent to it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thanks for coming on and thanks for sharing of your heart and your mind with, with me and with our audience. I know many people will be glad to hear from you and interested to hear this curious topic that they, (laughs) you know, otherwise wouldn't be exposed to Um, anything else you would like to say on our way out. Just thank you for having me. I enjoyed this very much. Lovely. All right, darling. Well, again, thanks for being with me, and we'll see you all next time. Take care. Bye.